Just recently, Viktor Orban, our prime minister, said that, uh, first of all, migration is bad. And the second is that we never invited, you know, anyone here in Hungary. It's a sort of denial of this kind of exchange uh, and these kind of interactions. Hello, Slavic Connection listeners. Colin and Zach here with a great episode for you. We interviewed Zoltan Ginelli. He's a critical geographer from Hungary. Zach, what did we talk about? Well, you know, first of all, I, th- I think he provided a really unique insight into his field of critical geography. And he also looks at Hungarians and, and, and them as a collective people and how they're grappling with their past and what that means for, for their future moving forward as a, a nation. Yeah, this was a very you know nuanced conversation. So I hope you all enjoy. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Zoltan, thank you for coming to the Slavic Connection. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. For the benefit of our listeners, if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about yourself, how you got into your field of research, your much of your life stories you feel like getting into, just let people know who they're uh, hearing from. Okay, thanks. By training, I'm a geographer. So I started with philosophy and history, but then I ended up as a geographer. And I started doing academic research already as a bachelor student in 2009. And I stick to historical topics. And the first bigger topic that interested me is colonial history. And when I looked at the history of geography and geographers in Hungary, what interested me is how come these histories are not integrated into the wider histories of global colonialism. So whereas these geographers, their ideas came from this kind of global pool of ideas, global colonialism. So like a geographical determinism and uh, various ideologies of race Uh, and civilization connected to colonial history that interested me in the first place and what's our position as Hungarians in this wider history. And Zoltan, you you define yourself at least via your CV and your resume as as a critical geographer. So maybe before we jump even further into your background and your academic pursuits, you know, what do you see as the role of a critical geographer in, in kind of the modern modern academic world or professional world as well? Yeah, that's actually a very tricky question. And I, I sometimes get criticized for that, being a critical geographer here in Hungary, because critical geography is a very West-centric and Anglo-American concept. So it evolved as a critique of positivism and a very technocratic form of Cold War science in the US, in the UK, and elsewhere in the West. So defining yourself as a critical geographer here, although it's connected to a leftist uh, anti-systemic position as a form of critique, and it is also connected to other content ideas like the Frankfurt School in Germany or other critical thought from France, for example. And we also have this form of leftist critique that came to the West from Hungary. Uh, But uh, it's a very West-centric and maybe a form of self-colonization to just say that you're a critical geographer here in Hungary. It calls for explanation. And this is actually what I started to research. So the geographies of scientific knowledge, the circulation of ideas, because this, this knowledge was not present in Hungary when I was a student. So I was bringing it back in and trying to look at how to apply this anti-systemic or leftist uh, critique, which 
is often lumped together under the umbrella of critical geography, which might include various approaches like post-colonialism or feminism, so gender studies, but also criticisms around race, racism, etc., etc. To apply this into our own context is not very straightforward. First, we have to understand our local histories, local social histories, and also find the traces of thought that are similar to this critique. Uh, and this, this is what we developed another research project, which was about uh, how to uh, think about these kind of colonial relations and also this kind of access to knowledge and also the ways that this mainstream knowledge is interpreted locally here in Hungary. I don't usually use this term critical geographer, but I use it in most cases to point out this leftist anti-systemic position, uh, but also sometimes just to you know, identify myself differently in the Hungarian uh, context. For my benefit, could you maybe elaborate on those positions and what is exactly about this leftist approach to geography that makes it so Anglo-centric and Western and kind of novel in your experience in, in Hungary? Okay, so critical geography is kind of the mainstream now in the Western world. So if you buy textbooks and you want to keep yourself up to date and you want to teach your students here in Hungary uh, geography, you all very often get critical geography in the first place. So then just taking that body of knowledge and teaching it here is not adequate to understand our own histories of where to base this kind of critique on our own knowledge. That type of approach is not really developed. But that type of leftist critique is very different, which is focused on the West, Western uh, context than you have in post-socialist or post-communist Eastern European countries. We have a very different history. So the, the position of what is it to be a leftist is very different in political discussions in Eastern Europe than in the West, obviously. It's often connected to the 1968 tradition in the West, whereas in Hungary, that history is very different, right? So first, it's also the problem of reinventing a leftist geographical critical perspective in Hungary, which is based on the local knowledge, but still, you know, trying to use and apply in some ways or translate that type of critique from the West. But the best way to do that is to understand these different local positions from a global perspective. For example, the critique on global capitalism and global inequalities is something that is shared within both contexts. You just have to understand the different structural positions that these two local contexts are in. Most of the leftist critique, also from geographers in Hungary, is based on the critique of global capitalism and the critique of Western hegemony. But my problem with that perspective is that uh, it not only sometimes de-emphasizes the local histories in Eastern Europe, but also it's not really global in the sense that it keeps out the other global. So, for example, most contexts of the global south, which is sometimes similar to the development histories that we have in Eastern Europe, for example, Latin America. So most of the leftist critique and some critical geographers in Hungary are still very West-centric in this respect of trying to copy or there's some form of mimicry 
in copying or applying that kind of Western knowledge. You can read David Harvey, for example, who is, you know, an icon of critical geography as a Marxist. You can read Doreen Massey as a feminist uh, author, but there, the context that they're analyzed are mostly based on US and UK. So it's not that straightforward to do this uh, type of critique here in Hungary. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, based on preparing for this interview and, and what I found about your work is the most fascinating part of, of Hungary's history, and in my opinion, is is this in-betweenness. And so when you're talking about these perspectives, I, I'm kind of curious how they how they manage to frame these issues, and do they frame them from a perspective as the colonizer or as the colonized? Because I, I think the tendency would be to frame them as the colonizer, but then I read more into your work and obviously Hungary's history, and I think in some ways they could e- easily be you know, framed as the colonized in, in, in different periods of Hungary's history? Yeah, this is actually a very complex question. So you raise various questions in one. The one is, you know, whether this colonizer and colonized dichotomy is adequate for approaching uh, the history of global colonialism. And then this kind of in-betweenness. So what is our in-between position? as, uh, I would say, Eastern Europeans or Hungarians. That's also not obvious if you're part of Eastern Europe, you might be part of Central Europe, and there are these various position games included in this whole topic that we're talking about, which I might talk about later. In between us, from my perspective, and this connects to my uh, leftist critical and anti-systemic position, comes from World Systems Analysis, which states that there's the global core and the global periphery, and there's this in-between semi-peripheral a structural position. And this was applied first by Wallerstein, but then by Immanuel Wallerstein, but then by others too. So it's kind of a, it's a very developed idea by now. And these Europeans usually use this concept to understand their positions in uh, global capitalism. So Eastern Europe was one, this kind of socialist and post-socialist Eastern Europe was this kind of conceptualized as semi-periphery, which is in between the core and the periphery structurally. It has some structural aspects, some of production and trade relations, but also peripheral aspects involved. Now, this for me was very interesting because it provides a structural context to look at this very hierarchical global capitalism in a dynamic manner because these positions are actually about relations and it's not country specific that Hungary is a semi-periphery. It's a, it's a, rela- it's a, a way of integration into the world economy, which is semi-peripheral. Applying this to what you have in post-colonial studies and the discourse of decolonialism, that's how does this apply then to global colonialism and our position as East Europeans and Hungarians in global colonialism. And what I saw is precisely what you stated, that there's this colonizer and colonized position, and recent political discourse tried to reaffirm that we were usually involved in global colonialism in the way that we were the colonized. So this kind of colonial victimization, which is going on, but they're saying that we have never had colonies, so we were actually not involved as colonizers in global colonialism. And applying the world systems analysis on this kind of history shows us that since uh, the region and Hungary integrated into global capitalism from a semi-peripheral position, that really also constructed an in-between position between the colonized and the colonized. So we were involved in global colonialism, but not in a way of like seeking, in a hegemonic position of seeking and grabbing colonial territories, but producing colonists, for example, or involved in trade relations 
trying to expand our trade in global colony history, producing settlers, but also missionaries and you know, mercenaries like Hungary has fought under Francisco Pizarro's troops uh, or, or banners in, against the Incas in South America in the Andes, or were involved in the East Indian Company as sailors and mercenaries, again, as traders, right? So we had some vested interest in global colonialism. But this kind of in-between position, I think the best way to understand what this means, not just being both colonizers and colonized peoples, East European was by various colonial and imperial powers like the German Empire, or there was the Russian Empire, and also the Soviet Union, or there was the Ottoman Empire, a, a colonized space, contested space of colonization. But perhaps the best way to approach this in-betweenness is through the concept of race. So race means a difference because race was conceptualized very differently. And what's often forgotten is that uh, especially after 1989, that this region was sort of whitened out with, in, because the, it was also, the system change was also about the return to Europe and we had to demonstrate our Europeanness and that we were actually, we were always European and we were always part of the white civilization. And that's why other people from the global south saw this kind of system change after 1989 and 1991 as a return to or a, a, a reunification of white empire, right? But on the other hand, East Europeans were not considered white for hundreds of years. They were always in this not quite white position. Think of the Holocaust, most of the Jewish populations were in Eastern Europe, which were racialized. Think of the Roma Holocaust also, or Roma history, but think of the other East European populations and Eastern Europeans were structurally also relied on emigration and they produced a lot of uh, migrants. Historically, like 1.5 million Hungarians went to the USA as settlers or as workers in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Now they were racialized by the American racial state as honkies, but these kind of not, not quite white populations, together with the Italian, the Polish, and other so-called Slavic uh, nations. So this kind of in-betweenness also produced a dynamic of trying to catch up to the hegemonic global core, but also two strategies, either to ally with the periphery, which is reflected in the anti-colonial critique coming from Eastern Europe. Think of the communist project after the Second World War, which was about uh, an anti-colonial critique against the West. So an alliance with the global periphery or a kind of uh, catching up to the West to exclude better the global periphery in order to, you know, solidify colonial or neo-colonial relations of exploitation and, you know, get more of the benefits of the global core from this kind of exploitative global relations. Have any of those relations maintained in, into the modern era from that socialist opening period, or have they been wiped away by what you say, this post-1989 return to whiteness, or do those connections remain kind of as they translated into the global capitalist system? And, 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 and did that opening kind of benefit Hungary in any way moving forward and having a connection with those peripheral or, or colonized peoples? Or was it ultimately wiped away by maybe nationalist rhetoric and, and post-89, uh, post-89 return to Europe? Yes, I think both is true. So there are, are important continuities, but also there are important shifts 
in this positioning game. But the structural critique, I think, is really important to look at how this kind of maneuvering, this in-between maneuvering, formed a sort of continuity beneath all these shifting discourses around race or coloniality, how East Europeans, in this case Hungarians, tried to position themselves and identify themselves as part of a, a specific race or a colonial in a colonial position. And 1989 was important, as I said, it was sort of a whitening out this kind of a, at that historical moment with the so-called neoliberal turn and the, you know, turn towards capitalist transition. It was also about somehow putting behind us this kind of inefficient communist and also this kind of colored socialist internationalism, which was building alliances with these post-colonial countries, right? So there's also forgetting, forgetting, for example, the histories of the people who came here from the global south as students to study or guest workers, for example, uh, Cubans who worked here in the 1980s. And many of these came here, these people came here because there was a rising global indebtedness, indebtedness after the neoliberal turn, which was a reaction to the oil crisis. This generated later on a global indebtedness. And then, and the countries in the global south and both those in Eastern Europe tried to pay back the West and not each other. So these are the indebtedness spiral or debt spiral also led to the system change, but it also generated the need for cheap labor already in the 1980s. And after the system change, all these guest workers were sent back. Some people remained here. For example, in Hungary, I did interviews with former Cuban guest workers. Now, these histories have been forgotten. And today, even the political rhetoric, just recently, Viktor Orban, our prime minister, said that, uh, first of all, migration is bad. And the second is that we never invited, you know, anyone here in Hungary. It's a sort of denial of this kind of exchange uh, and these kind of interactions. But there are also continuities. I talked about uh, the debt crisis uh, and actually the success of the Orban regime is also connected to the 2008 and 2009 debt crisis, right? So it's an authoritarian, illiberal reaction and conservative reaction to that debt crisis. Uh, and the way, and it also generated a new global maneuvering and new ways to kind of position Hungary in uh, the global economy. After this kind of neoliberal phase, so after 1989 and this kind of 2010 phase. So it's a reaction against this neoliberal phase. They paid back, for example, the IMF loans in 2013. Uh, but they also drew closer to China, for example, and to Russia and to other parts, for example, in Brazil when Bolsonaro came to power. So this kind of new maneuvering is actually not that new, but a return to formerly developed uh, relationships. Also, even although this uh, new regime is very anti-communist, but also we have to remember that the liberal opposition is also very anti-communist. So it's a very common political position in Hungary. So um, it's also returned to socialist internationalism. So those relations which were developed in, uh, during socialist internationalism. And it's not just China, but also Central Asia. So our connection to the New Silk Road and the One Belt, One Route project is partly based on these formerly developed connections. If we invest in Mongolia, for example, and there are various export projects in Central Asia, but also in the Middle East. So these are, for example, continuities. But 
one thing that's that's also building on these histories of I would say Hungarian colonial history. So the Hungarian discourses about colonialism, for example, is that uh, these discourses were for 200 years built on uh, defending sovereignty and relieving dependency, so contesting dependency against these various, you know, global core or bigger colonial powers. And the current government is building on these former experiences of uh, being colonized by the Nazis, for example, by the Soviet Union, by the Germans, you know, in general, previously in history, but also by various other powers, by the uh, Habsburgs in our history, the Austrians, or by the Ottoman Turks. And these are uh, put in uh, together in a complex colonial discourse, which is then made into the this kind of anti-Western rhetoric of uh, Brussels is still the and colonial and imperial power. It's kind of uh, also, it's not just the, the symbol of the European Union as something that's trying to uh, challenge our sovereignty again, uh, it's coming from the West. These were actually former colonizers, right? But it's also connected to they're woven together. So, for example, Brussels is the new Moscow. So we know that we had our experiences against the Soviet Union and now Brussels is doing the same thing. It's also, you can see that this political discourse, which is very government supported, is today only contested by the opposition by mirroring the same discourse. So they would say that, okay, but we will not become the a Russian colony. Or today, as Fudan University will open its gates in Hungary, as there's a new investment project around Fudan University in Budapest, uh, the opposition is blowing this colonial discourse of victimization of we will not become a Chinese colony. So they're actually mirroring this discourse and this is very problematic because this kind of colonial victimization is totally dissecting the region and, and reproducing this idea that we are an exceptional region which uh, was not involved in global colonial history. So there's no comparisons available, for example, okay, so if we were colonized or we, we are under the threat of being colonized, isn't that the same as the Indian or the Ghanaian experiences or what you had, for example, in Latin America. So this kind of dissecting the region and, uh, and now we've turned to what I hinted in the beginning that we're not Eastern Europe, but Central Europe. The Central Europe is a concept which is applied precisely because it then kind of whitewashes our history and says that we're all, always this kind of moderate center, the heart of Europe, and we're always European, but we are not part of colonial history. After the neoliberal turn, there was a need to come up with new global ideologies to position Hungary, right? And there are some uh, continuities. For example, I mentioned the new Silk Road, where uh, the government started to support these older ideologies, which are very much semi-peripheral. There's the ideology of Turanism, of Hungarians being both of uh, Eastern and Western uh, ancestry, because Turanism is about uh, an idea of there was there were these nomadic peoples in Central Asia, and Hungarians actually migrated into Europe from that area. So we have this Asian descent. Now this was used to actually position Hungarians against the West. It was part of an anti-Western rhetoric in the interwar era, 
after the Treaty of Trianon. And now the Fidesz regime is turning back to this idea in order to uh, you know, develop these kind of uh, investment projects in Central Asia because we share this kind of Turanist heritage again. So it's a very state-subsidized uh, uh, kind of agenda. Uh, but the last thing I think, which, which is totally misunderstood, I think, by uh, people who are criticizing the Orban regime, is how they try to apply Christianity. So there's this ideology of Christian democracy. Uh, which is part of this so-called conservative revolution ongoing in Hungary. But you have to understand that in, in the global scale, like for example in Africa, there are more Christians living than in Europe. So Christianity is also used as a global agenda and not just some kind of local way of proving or within the European Union or within Europe that we are, you know, we are actually part of this kind of Christian civilization. It's also a way to open up, for example, to the Nigerian church. There was like a 1 million euro donation from the government to the Nigerian church. And these kind of developments also in the Middle East and elsewhere are used as ways to foster uh, exports and foster, you know, investments and also kind of try to develop diplomatic contacts. I, I'm glad that you ended sort of talking about the state's role in these narratives and, and, and how that it sort of frames these narratives through its own pre-existing like mythologies. I'm not as familiar with the Hungarian context, but for example, the Polish government can very readily take this Poland is the bulwark of Europe against X mythology, and they just turn it to whatever they need. It's the bulwark against Islam. It's the bulwark against capitalism. It's the bulwark against Russians. Whenever the government needs, they can turn it the way they need it in the context, and, and they're always the, the underdog, and everyone loves an underdog story. That's kind of, it, it's, it's morally justified and makes you feel like voting for that party again. But the the issue I, I, I wanted to ask you about with focusing on, on national histories is that, and you had kind of mentioned this, that when we talk about who does colonialism, we talk about states that have colonized. There were French colonies and British colonies and German colonies, but there were also Czech and Hungarian and Polish settlers in all of these places how do you think about teaching history, specifically the history of colonialism, without relying on nations as a, as a conceptual framework for understanding how history is driven? Because that is so much of how history is taught, particularly in you know, primary schools. It's hard to overcome when you're trying to tell people about you know, how, how, how things other than politics shape the world. I taught at universities and also I taught at Milestone Institute, which is for secondary school students, uh, trying to train them for entrance exams in the UK. And there I taught post-colonial geography, but part of it was like this kind of how it's taught in the West and like the basic concepts. But most of the materials in the second part was all about Eastern Europe. So I tried to engage with our local histories so how is it in our histories? Because the knowledge of the students already have the knowledge, you just have to activate it. And the mode or the way to activate it in this case is just to focus on coloniality and race and open up our national histories from this perspective. So if I 
if I ask, did we have a colonial history? As we've discussed, the obvious answer would be no, because we never had colonies, right? But then if we dig deep and look at the various ways and ways that we were uh, integrated into global colonialism and our relations to colonialism and how colonial discourse evolved, then we'll see that we had a very rich colonial history. It's just a matter of approach. So as we discussed before, we had this kind of various discourses around coloniality, also anti-colonialism the way that we try to connect to the process of decolonization. And it also opens up that, uh, yes, that the problem is that national histories are locked into these local, national, or maybe regional spaces that we try to connect to, or maybe connected in our case to uh, Europe. In the case of the countries that you mentioned, for example, the United Kingdom or France, for example, these, as I said, these kind of histories of colonial, colonialism or empire have been in, included into their national histories, right? So it's actually a trick that then that's part of their national history, like uh, learning about in, uh, colonialism in India, for example, or in Ghana, in the case of UK. So looking at, it's looking at the global interconnections, entanglements, and also geographies of knowledge, so the circulations, in, in between these places and spaces. And also, I would say, not to forget the various structural positions and the various strategies that these, these regions or these countries try to integrate into global capitalism would be a basic approach that would make you look at different actors. And I just want to mention one example, which also has relevance up to today, right now. Uh, we are doing. Uh, we did an exhibition project called the Trans Periphery Movement, which was about this kind of uh, relations between Eastern Europe and the Global South. Which, as I said, is also about the history of the relationship between the semi-peripheries and the peripheries, global peripheries. So, looking at these interperiphery relations, it's like looking not at the West, but our uh, you know shared histories with the Global South. And there, you have one example. For example, Hungarian settlers in South America, which arrived there in the late 19th century, but more and more after the Trianon Treaty in 1920, when like two thirds of the Hungarian kingdom was taken away, like 80% 80 of the Hungarian migrants came from the detached territories to South America. So there was a great influx of people, many tens of thousands. Now these people established colonies there, they called it colonies, some were named after Hungarian settlements, like Arpad Uifalva or Colonia Arpad, for example. And in the interwar period, it was a historical moment when Hungary tried to, uh, through state officials or Jesuit missionaries or so, uh, sociographers who went to South America, teachers, uh, various intellectuals, tried to organize the colonial diaspora, which was very challenging but was because there was not uh, such a huge population as in the case of the USA. And there was also the Brazilian and Argentinian racial state, which used agents to, you know, lure and gather immigrants from Eastern Europe to build the colonies there. These agents were sent to villages. And in some cases, like half of the population of a Hungarian village was involved in so-called uh, 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 this kind of Americas, like going to America to work. That was usually the USA, but after the immigration restrictions in the 1920s, they went to South America. 
Now, after the Second World War, uh, there was um, uh, the Brazilian and the Argentinian racial state. Uh, they were trying to, you know, assimilate these very strongly, these local populations. So in the end, these kind of ambitions to construct or build an autonomous, organized Hungarian colonial diaspora failed. And this was the fate of many of the other Eastern European countries, the Polish or Ukrainians, etc., etc. Now, why does this matter now is that throughout the socialist period, this diaspora has been largely forgotten. This diaspora has become largely nationalist because they try to preserve their ethnic identities. And now, after the 2010s, during the Orban regime, and this is actually part of a wider post-socialist trend or shift, is that there's a return to this global South diaspora, but also the diaspora globally. But you can see that this kind of post-colonial diaspora is also affected. And there are repatriation programs. I've been speaking with a person who was involved in our exhibition project, who stayed at Jarago do Sul, which was a settlement founded by Hungarians in southern Brazil, just took up the Hungarian citizenship a few days ago. So again, these post-socialist countries in Eastern Europe are turning back to the former colonial diaspora. And it's we were speaking about the problems of national history. I would raise the question, why isn't the South American diaspora, Hungarian diaspora, involved in our national histories? So how can we talk about colonial Hungary, so this kind of a, a colonial Hungary, as there was a you know, wider uh, colonial diaspora of Hungarians all over the world? This kind of colonial history has been appropriated by national governments in ways of, for example, there were colonial expeditions of Hungarians, and they are glorified as you know, national achievements. And they never reflect on the fact that they were heavily involved in the whole global colonial project. It's just another matter that uh, many Hungarian aristocrats or people who went on these expeditions uh, were like traveling under British banners or like German uh, banners, or they were active in uh, colonies which were held by these major colonial powers. But our specific role in this global colonialism is de-emphasized. Although, as I said, there were various actors involved. They've just been glorified as part of you know, national achievements, and they are sold uh, and exhibited for tourists and for the Hungarian population uh, in museums, museum collections, and also various festivals. But there's no uh, reflection on this colonial history because, as we've just discussed, you know, the main uh, narrative here in Hungary is that we never held colonies. We're not responsible for colonialism. And this sort of white guilt is put aside because there are various uh, political interests behind, you know, maintaining this kind of exceptionalist position. It's really fascinating because, you know, in, in the usage of this political rhetoric by by the current government, the Hungarian government, it seems that there's this kind of paradoxical use of of connections with the periphery, right? Because you talked about Tehranism, where they're using it to kind of emphasize our shared maybe ethnic heritage on one hand, you know, looking towards Central Asia, but then there's a complete ignorance to maybe a, a colonial history in, in, in South America. So it's just, it's just fascinating how there can be this selective usage, if I'm perceiving that correctly. Yeah, and I think, I think we have to make this point, this kind of semi-peripheral 
kind of positioning of in-betweenness of being both white but you know non-white is very characteristic of Eastern European countries. And we have to understand this local history, how it was globally integrated, because many of the Western criticism today against recent politics or political changes or identifications like Hungarian turn towards conservatism, illiberalism or Christianity, etc., etc., of uh, embracing whiteness is totally misunderstanding the, the history of this region and how these are actually, you know, very selectively applying moments of our history to play a new game of like global positioning in order to get benefits of relieving dependency from the West and gaining new alliances, which was actually the historical the case throughout 200 years. After the rise of the communist regime, there were these anti-communist politicians who fled from Hungary and both groups tried to construct a colonial discourse that the communists said that they're fighting together with the Afro-Asian post-colonial countries against Western imperialism and, you know, neo-colonialism. And they tried to argue that Eastern European was always, you know, this colonial space. We just fought back fascism and Nazism, which was about colonizing Eastern Europe. And that's how they used to gain alliances for example, in Ghana, which I'll talk about. And the second is the anti-communist refugees who fled to New York and other parts in Germany and other parts of the world. They came up with this Soviet colonialism discourse. And I'm focusing on Ferenc Noy, the former prime minister of Hungary. And he was responsible for manipulating or influencing the first Afro-Asian conference in Bandung in 1955, so that in the conference, these Afro-Asian countries would include in the, the resolution of condemning colonialism, they would include Soviet colonialism. So there was this various ambitions to, you know, persuade the post-colonial countries after post-war to support Hungarians, both on the communist and on the anti-communist side. And they were using the same experiences of colonial victimization to, you know, put forward, put forth that argument. And so lastly, this connection to Ghana is that the Ghana was the first sub-Saharan African country to gain independence in 1957. And so Hungarians quickly tried to, in the early 1960s, to persuade Kwame Nkrumah, the president, to you know, form an alliance with Hungary based on international anti-colonial solidarity. And Hungarians were responsible for putting together the first seven-year plan of Ghana which was constructed by Jozef Bognar, a Hungarian development economist. And what was fascinating is that these relations also led to not just developing Hungarian development economics through the Afro-Asian post-colonial world, but also drawing these experiences of how to relieve dependency, how to develop expert economies, taking this back to feed into the Hungarian economic reform in 1968. So this is a totally forgotten history of how the third world influenced Hungarian development. It would be remiss if we didn't give you a chance to talk about your upcoming manuscript on the transnational history of central place theory. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a little overview of the concept and what we can look forward to from you in the near future. Yeah, thank you very much. There are actually two books that I'm working on because one book is about this colonial history of Hungary. And we're doing it with uh, Professor James Mark at the University of Exeter and also Peter Rapor here in Hungary at the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. 
So that's one uh, book proposal we're working on for Cambridge University Press. And the second is my own monograph for my PhD dissertation topic, which is connected to the history of geography. And I'm actually doing global history of geography, focusing on this kind of post-war and early Cold War shift, uh, how the world war and how the uh, Cold War affected the type of knowledge that is produced as geography. A lot of uh, planners from the UK or from America uh, uh, were involved in this kind of post-war modernization theory and development planning, and Walter Kristaller's central place theory was used there. And this has been totally forgotten because of what I said in the beginning, this kind of uh, Western and Anglo-American knowledge hegemonies. So that's my uh, book project, which is going to be finished this year. Great. Well, thank you for giving us the rundown. We're looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you so much. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. 